If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open it to Nehemiah chapter 4. That's in the Old Testament, about midway through. Yeah, I'll get it, I'll get it, thanks. Um, first and Second Samuel, Chronicles, Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah is uh, where we are for these few months. We're working our way through the book of Nehemiah, which is... Um, a beautiful, unbelievably applicable story to us today in the, in the modern day of 2009. Nehemiah is a book. If you haven't been here, you're welcome to catch up. We've got all of the messages on the Internet and also on the, the back table there. We've got CDs if you missed any of them. Nehemiah is an analogy. or I'm sorry, we are taking Nehemiah as an as a applicable um, point to us today that what's happening is that Nehemiah is a man uh, that who um, was called by God to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the temple that existed there, that was torn down by the Babylonians in 586 AD, was the place that God told his people, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, that through this temple and through this city, I will make my name great. But it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And so in order for God's will to be carried out through this city and to pave the way for Jesus who would come uh, several hundred years later, this city had to be rebuilt. And so he moves upon a man named Nehemiah who leads God's people back from captivity to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, rebuild most specifically the wall. And the... Of course, the analogy for us today is, is that our lives are broken down, our cultures are broken down, our, our churches are broken down, and God is calling us to be people that would restore not only our city, but uh, maybe even our own marriages and family and church. And so the, the, the analogy that we're working with here is that just as God called Nehemiah to rebuild and to restore and to, to make this city great so that God could work through it, he calls us as people to build a great church and to build great lives so that God can work through us and make his name great in all the world. And so um, that's where we are. So what we're going to do is uh, read Nehemiah chapter 4. It's a whole lot more uh, exciting than the list of 75 names that we read last week, uh, but we got through that, and so we're going to re- read through it. Here's, usually I have points today. Um, the points almost jump out of the page at you. I mean, they almost slap you in the face as you're reading it. So we're going to read chapter 4. I'm going to just read through it, pause it along the way, make some points, and then there's an overarching theme that I want us to look at at the end, and that will be it. Okay, so let's do this. Let's pray and ask God to help us. And um, as I pray, I'm going I'm to pray for us. Um, but uh, would you, would you, would you pray for me as well? Um, I, uh, I don't know what you think about people that are in the ministry, or you probably only see me sometimes on Sunday morning, and everything's hunky dory. And yeah, but um, I've had a um, I, past couple of days. I've been quick to anger with my children. I've been uh, just a little, a little off spiritually and um, have not shown my kids grace um, and my wife is sick and instead of being um, kind of um, uh, you know pouring out and trying to, to be understanding I've just been a little bit selfish and so I repent of that and I just kind of need God's grace before I preach so I'm going to pray that God would help us and you pray for me too that God would take a pardoned rebel 
who is very much in process and help him help him uh, speak today okay all right let's pray lord thank you for your word and for your book we believe it's true completely true in fact jesus says in luke chapter 24 to those disciples on the road to emmaus it says that he started from moses and then he worked through the prophets and he took all of the old testament and he explained to them things he explained himself to them from the old testament and so nehemiah chapter 4 is ultimately not about fighting a good fight so that we can be better people or or doing certain things so that we can have better thursdays it it is it is ultimately a chapter about jesus and how he rescues those that have faith in them and then how he puts those people on a mission to be victorious overcomers for the sake of something greater than their own life and so god help us zero in on that today and encourage us we need encouragement and and god in spite of my of my sin use me today and help the message and what you want to say to us through your holy spirit be clear today and encourage us encourage men today encourage women and help us lift up our eyes and see how you are providential in our pain in our progress and i pray this in jesus sweet and victorious name amen all right let's go nehemiah chapter four I'm reading out of the ESV version. It's a relatively newer version of the Bible released a few years ago. I like it a lot. It is um, readable, but yet it's really sort of faithful to the original words of the original languages. Probably most of you are reading from the NIV, I would imagine. That's okay. It's relatively close. So we'll have it up here on the screen, and um, let's roll. Nehemiah 4.1. Now remember, what's happened is Nehemiah has already gathered his people. He's gone back to Jerusalem. He's built the wall back up. They're in the process of it. He has faced early opposition from Sanballat and a couple of his, his friends. And yet he, he pushed through that early opposition. He begins to organize his people. He shares his burden. He has more opposition in chapter 2. And then we read last week, chapter 3, about how they began to organize and put people on the wall. And now they're in the middle of this building project. And they are now facing stepped-up opposition from Sanballat and his friends. And so uh, there's just kind of a theme that runs through Nehemiah. Anytime you're doing something for the Lord, it is going to be opposed and it will be difficult. And the progress that you make for him, whether it be collectively building a church or whether it be individually just trying to live for Jesus, will be opposed. And so uh, that's what's happening here in chapter 4. All right, let's go. Nehemiah 4.1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? I mean, can you picture this guy? He's probably standing over on the side of the building site, and he's just, he's just mocking these people working. He's just kind of like, the, it's almost like a, something out of a movie. He's just shouting insults at them, um, trying to discourage the people. And then his little buddy comes along and, and takes it another step further. Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, this reads like, like almost something out of a middle school like sin. He says, yes. 
what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. I mean, that, that's not even funny. That's not even like a good insult. I mean, it's, it's only like, your mama wears combat boots. I mean, it just come up with something better. But, and so they're just, you know, it's just so immature, like insecure. Like when you're doing, listen, there's a little lesson here. When you're, when you're trying to really live for God, it's awkward and it's going to rub some people the wrong way. And you can just see insecurity come out because they just, it's just like a fox can break down your wall. I mean, just whatever. But I mean, just insecurity causes people to get personal, doesn't it? In their attacks. And when you're doing something for Jesus, you should, you should expect that. Verse 4, and then Nehemiah, I love this. Ooh, I love this. I cannot wait till we get to the end of the book of Nehemiah where you see Nehemiah just, just going psycho on people. But you see a little tidbit of, of his, just his passion here. He says in verse 4, Hero God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. This is Nehemiah praying now. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. I just love Nehemiah because he's a man's man, right? He's not, he's not the dude with the, you know, he's got, he's not Ned Flanders, if you've ever watched Simpsons, which I hope you haven't, but I'm giving the north-south from some of you. Anyway, he's not the wimpy, like, pleated pants. I'm sorry if you got him on right now. Combed hair guy. He's, he's, he gets mad, right? He's, and he prays this prayer where he prays like, oh, God, punish those jerks. Punish them. Like the Psalms are full of prayers. They're called the imprecatory Psalms. That means where the psalmist prays that God would, would, would dash his enemies. I mean, some of them read pretty rough. It's like, God, bash their babies against the rocks. And you're reading it and you're like, ooh, that's in the Bible? And the point is not that we should read Psalms and that we should pray, we should want like people's children to get slammed against rocks. But the point is, is that there's real, this is one of the things that makes the Bible so valid and true to me is that it doesn't cover up the reality and the rawness of God's people. Like if I'm writing a book and I'm trying to create some world religion, I'm going to I'm going to spruce up the personalities of some of the characters. And and I might not include that psalm where we want them to, you know, bang their babies against the rocks or Nehemiah praying for damnation to come down on his enemies. But what it is is it's capturing real raw human emotion where dudes get mad because things are not the way they should be. And I just I love that. I think I think in our sort of passive culture, we need more people to just get ticked off because things aren't the way they should be. Right on. All right, I'm glad you agree with me. I'm not going to beat people up. I'm just, come on, let, light, let's let a fire under us. Lord, give me, give me the passion of Nehemiah to set in order things that should be set in order. Verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. And then check out this second half of this sentence. I mean, it just preaches itself. It almost needs no exposition. For the people had a mind to work. Wow. Wow. Like they just, there was this group of people and they just, like life was bigger than seven steps to having, you know, more positive thoughts. Life, like they knew that they were on a mission 
for the God of the universe and that their little efforts to rebuild this city were part of something far bigger than their individual lives. And, and that like, motivated them to, to, to be like, heart, soul, and mind in this task. And, 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 and I mean, imagine, like, have you ever done any manual labor? It's tough, right? You start to get mad at the guy that's taking more water breaks than you, or, you know, your hands get... I mean, doing this brick wall, that was hard work. Like, we, I, mean, I am not a... A, uh, a, a construction kind of guy at all, but I have on missions trips in Latin America laid block before. And in, like in 2009, that's hard, man, with like cement machines and, and I mean, you know, you got to wear gloves. I mean, my little girly hands, I mean, they'll get all carved up. These people could not go to Lowe's and get, get gloves and cement machines. I mean, that was hard work and there's opportunity for frustration and, and opportunity for dissension. And yet, yet, yet the mission and what God had called them to do to rebuild this wall was bigger than that, and somehow they just had a heart and a mind to work. And, and correspondingly for us, like, yeah, it's hard to live together. You get mad at people, but yet, but yet they're just in there and they're doing it and they had a mind to work. That's a beautiful sentence, and I, and I pray that it's, and I do, I think it is true of us, and I'm thankful for that, and I hope we, we always keep that before us. I pray that Crosspoint would be a place where people, they really, they just have a mind to work. Just roll up their sleeves, and I, I love that about us, and let's keep it that way. Verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were being closed, they were very angry. Look, it was a threat to them. Jerusalem being the city that it should be was a threat to them. You being the man of God that you need to be, young men, is a threat to some people in your world. You, young lady, being the mother and the wife and the whatever that you are for God, that is a threat. It causes people to be insecure. You can't, look, it is not like lollipops and butterflies. If you stick it in the ground and say, I'm living for Jesus, it will be threatening to a world that is hostile to the gospel. Like Christianity in its true form is a threat to the world. It's a threat. And that's evident here that Jerusalem being the city that it should be is a threat to certain people. Of course, we know that to other people, it's a great blessing. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it says that the aroma of Christ, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a smell of life to some people and it's the scent of death to others. When you are living for Jesus, it will cause some people to rejoice and it will cause other people to gnash their teeth. And that's just the way it is. Verse 8, and they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Verse 9, listen, this is, this is another sentence that just, it just literally is the point. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. They had some vulnerabilities, they had some weak spots, and they prayed that God would, would hold up, that God would give them wisdom to, to, to cut off some of their vulnerable spots. And I think, talk about it in a little bit, but the application is clear. Where are our weak spots? Not only us collectively as a people, but where are our weak spots in our lives? Like are, there, are, there, are there vulnerable, are there, are there holes in your wall that is just a place where stuff that should not be able to come into your life comes into your life? And right now, I think, I hope the Holy Spirit has just given you the wisdom and the strength to, to seal up those areas that need protection. Verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength. Now this is now, okay, we've been talking about their enemies, and now verse 10 
is talking about some of the, uh, the God's people. They're starting to get a little tired and break down. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. And by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And so the people, some of them are starting to get, you know, kind of worn down. You, you, if you, that's another thing. When you, when you really begin to follow hard after Jesus... And when you begin to be part of a young church that, is, that has got a lot of stuff going, I mean, we've got people that here that have been doing and serving for a long time and from the very first day here, and it can cause you to get spiritually fatigued. If you've been, you know, if you've, you've been, uh, I don't know, being a parent, I mean, that will wear you slap out. Can I get a, a north-south? I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, glory. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, that's hard, man. Being a being a, a a light for Christ in a hostile work environment, that will wear you out. That will wear you out. And they're saying, hey, we can't do this all by ourselves. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And so, so look, here's this leader, Nehemiah. Let's get in his shoes now. And he's thinking, oh my gosh, this is starting to really, really fall apart here. I've got some people that are starting to... To, to, you know, their knees are starting to shake a little bit. And now we've got this enemy over here who's sort of seeing that we are wearing down a little bit and is about to pounce on us. And, and Nehemiah just, he's such a great leader. See, see what he does here in these next couple of verses. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop them. At that time, verse 12, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Some of the commentaries say that this might have been those Jews were maybe the women who the Jewish women who lived in the surrounding areas who were beginning to see the enemy kind of poised for attack and were beginning to feel vulnerable. And when they were saying to Nehemiah, hey, let our men come back, whether it was that or whether it was just other people that weren't working that were Jews in the area began to feel vulnerable. And so you can see all this pressure is starting to come down on Nehemiah now. He's got... He's got the enemy that is sort of just there ready to pounce. And then he's got his own people starting to falter a little bit. And so he starting, what, what's he going to do? And so, so he gets strategic now. Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Look, he doesn't just kind of say, woe is me, what are we going to do? He doesn't get mad at the people who are tired. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the enemy. He just goes about getting strategic. Like when the pressure's on, he doesn't like get frozen and paranoid and just stay stagnant in one place and throw up a hallelujah. He, he actually does some strategic things and gets like these guys, gives them ninja cloaks and puts them in little strategic places and gives them bows and spears. I mean, that's just, it's awesome. Verse 14. Okay, but it's not just strategy. Verse 14. This is, this is an incredible verse. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. Look, this, some of you just need to, this, this is it for you today. This verse is it. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. 
Come on, man. Remember that God is for us and not against us. And, and remember that he is great and awesome. So, so come on. Come on, man. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And you know why I love this story maybe more than some of the other Old Testament stories? Is because, because that's all, like, Nehemiah, who's this great leader, he says, all right, remember God who's great and awesome. Now go fight. Compared to, and I wonder if Nehemiah was, was, was sort of reflecting on this fact, compared to some of the other great leaders in the Old Testament, like, like Moses, right? So he leads his people. Come on, God can do it. And then God does these miraculous things, like these plagues that hit Egypt, and, and then he sticks his you know, staff in the ground, a, a body of water opens up, they walk across, and then when the Egyptians follow them, it closes, and then like they're wandering around in the desert, and they're hungry, and, and you know, birds start falling, loaves of bread start falling from the sky, and then they're thirsty, and Moses strikes a rock with a stick and water comes out of a rock. I mean, that's miraculous. That's the kind of, that's the kind of great and awesome stuff I would kind of like to be on for God. For God. You know, Elijah, he's this great prophet and, and he, he runs from, uh, this, 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 this queen, this woman and, and like birds bring him filet mignons and drop him in front of him. And, and then he, he prays in front of these prophets and fire comes down and consumes their, their, their stuff, their little feeble sacrifice. And I mean, Joshua, this man of God, he sticks his toe in the Jordan River and it opens up and the people cross. I mean, great and awesome stuff. And so Nehemiah is aware of this history of God's people and, and probably so are all the people that Nehemiah is leading. And he's, now he's in the middle of his battle with his opposition and he's like, God can do it. Come on, let's do it. And they're like, you got any miracles up your sleeve, home slice? Um, can you like just like wave your hand and, you know, make all these enemies go away? But, but like this, I identify more with this because although, as God, although God is miraculous and powerful, most of the time in his providence, he allows his people to endure pain and trial and suffering. And so Nehemiah's answer to these people is, hey, hey, we're about to be in a fight. So grab your spear and go over there. And you grab your bow and you get stationed over there and remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. So not through some miraculous event, although we believe that God can do that and we pray for that, but just through their fortitude and through their 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 wisdom and through their courage and through their faith in God God worked and he frustrated the enemy from that day on verse 16 half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears shields bows and coats of mail and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the house those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. Let me pause there and just say that I think this is so important for us to, to kind of get a picture of what's going on here. Because it says that half of the guys built the wall. And then half of them were with their weapons standing guard. And the point I think there that we need to take out of this in our, uh, in our situation is, is that, look, there's every, different jobs are, are necessary. Like we tend to glamorize 
certain aspects of Christian service. You know, and I think it beats us up with guilt when we're not that person. Like, you know, the only guy we drag up in front of the church is the guy who, who's just got this great evangelism gift and he can just, you know, walk into, you know, the other day I was standing in line at Chick-fil-A and I saw this lady behind me and I handed her a track and explained the four spiritual laws to her and I just said the word Jesus and she fell down and received him as king right there. And we're like, yeah! And we're like, oh my gosh, I could never do that. I just, I can, we only, we only, and then like people that have some, maybe a musical gift or somebody that can teach or somebody that can preach, like those are the Christian superstars. But the reality is, is here that there was people that, like, it's okay if you're not great at that stuff. Like this Christian guilt that we run on each other because you're not out winning a thousand people for Jesus. Like, come on, man. I mean, if you've got that gift, use it. But if that's not you, then, then, then it's just as necessary. The person that, that changes the diaper and, <laughs> and folds that baby up and throws it away and creates an environment where people can be kind of set free to be comfortable in a church so they can hear about Jesus. I mean, it's just everybody's necessary. The guy who passes out the bulletin, the guy who sweeps, the guy who, who's just living a life that reflects Christ in his life. That is, that is just as vital as the people who have the more upfront public gifts. And I love this. Like some people built the wall. Some people sit. were standing there on guard. But yet everybody, kind of everybody had a weapon. Everybody had a responsibility to, to fight and to be ready should they, were, should they be called upon. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Verse 19, and I said to the people and to the, I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall. Listen to this. Far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there and our God will fight for us. Again, this just preaches itself. Look, life separates us. We, like, we need each other. Like, that's why regular worship, rather, regular gathering together, regular involvement with a smaller group is so important because we are separated from each other and we need to rally regularly together to live in such a way that God will come among us and fight for us. It's just simply not enough for, for, for us to be disconnected and to be separate from each other, and to have kind of a cognitive understanding of Christianity and the gospel without living it out together as a community. It's just simply not enough. We're separated from each other, and nobody in this room, as strong as you are, can live the Christian life alone. You will, if you are alone, you will get picked off. You will get discouraged. Your perspective, that's why they call them blind spots, because we can't see them, and we need we need. People to help us see our blind spots. It's just essential. Verse 21. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. Verse 23. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes each of us kept his weapon at his right hand. In other words, none of us kind of got relaxed and put on our pajamas and let our guard down. We all kept our, our gear with us, and we kept our weapon at our right hand. I've just really got two, two kind of overarching things to, to say to us today and just really just one great truth. And, 
And that the first thing is, is that um, progress is painful. Progress is painful as a church, as an individual. If you are, if you are living for Jesus and you are really, I, I, I say this phrase a lot and I hope you understand what I'm saying, like really sticking it in the ground, like digging a footing, like sticking a stake in the ground and saying, this is the place that I belong. Like it, it will be painful. You would be, check this verse out. First, first Peter chapter four. This, this is a, this is an incredibly incredibly important verse for us to um, come back to and for Christians in an age of cheap grace and easy believism and prosperity gospel where we want to where, where preachers on TV want to sell you some some quick easy successful you know three steps sow this seed and then everything will be okay with you this is an this is a really important verse for us to come back to over and over and over again like living for jesus is not a cupcake in this world first peter 4 verse 12 says this it says beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice insofar as you share christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed if you are insulted for the name of christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you so that verse is clear it needs no preaching it doesn't need any exposition it means that if if you're if you're getting hassled because you're trying to live a life for jesus then then rejoice because you're moving in the right direction and the pain that you're feeling is actually is actually evidence of the progress that you're making Think about, I mean, think about that. And like we read about in this chapter in Nehemiah, sometimes the, look, even the people closest to you can begin to let their knees shake a little bit and doubt you. Let alone the enemy who's making sorry little middle school cracks about how the fox goes up on your wall and it'll break down. I mean, come on, it's tough, it's painful, it's struggle. If you're really trying to live for Jesus, you're going to have to say no to some things and yes to some things that will bring divisions and clarity and, 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 and pain in your life. Come on, we've got to settle in on that. But it's hard for us Americans, isn't it? Because everything else in this world screams out how, how we should pursue ease. Right? I mean, we get frustrated when the clicker doesn't work. I was my dad's remote control when I was a kid. And I get mad when, you know, i got to mash the button really hard. And you think, and, and we think that doesn't have an effect on us how we live. It does. Like we are so opposed to pain that when it comes our way, we just, we don't know how to handle it. But Peter's saying here is, that's a clue that you're living for Jesus. But then he gives a caveat. This is important. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And don't think, don't think, oh good, I'm not a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler. No, he's just listing a few sins there to give us a flavor of sin. But if you jack it up and you're committing some stupid sinful act and you're suffering persecution because of that, don't say, oh Jesus, oh, how could this happen to me? I mean, no, 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 you, you actually did that. So what he's saying is, is don't, don't like throw everything that you do into the, the, the pot of pain for the sake of Jesus. Right. So, I mean, that's a little caveat there. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, 
what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And then verse 19, check this out. This is an underlined type verse here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So here's the point. Point number one is really part of this bigger point about God's providence is that the progress is painful. Living for Jesus is hard in a world that wants like just enough of Jesus to be inoculated. They want Jesus in our culture to be just a cultural icon that helps you with your morality rather than to be the savior of the universe who everyone must believe in or perish. That's not a popular thought. And living that way is painful. And secondly, we, we have to realize that, that pain, and I know this is not a popular, I mean, this is like, this is, you, won't, you won't hear this often. This is, this is not like a popular message, but pain is part of God's providence. And we read that and we see that in the life of Nehemiah. Pain is part of God's providence. And I end with this verse in Romans chapter 5. I love this verse. This is another, this is another uh, underlined verse here. Listen to this. Romans 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying there is that we're not justified because we're good people. We're justified because the faith that he gives us as a gift, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that we then exercise in trust in what Jesus did on the cross alone is the thing that justifies us. So there's no, like there's no good people and bad people, and the good people kind of make it to heaven and the bad people don't. There, there's only bad people. By the way, this is wildly unpopular. There's only bad people, and the bad people who repent and believe and receive Christ's goodness then become justified. Like, did you watch Teddy Kennedy's funeral yesterday? I don't know anything about Teddy Kennedy's life, really. I mean, I've heard a few of the you know, well-known stories about whatever, but I don't know where he stood with Jesus. But yesterday's funeral was just kind of all about the things that he did. And I, I, whatever. I mean, I, I don't expect anything less. I mean, this is not a statement on Teddy Kennedy. Jesus is not a Republican. All right, I, I don't, don't send me your emails or whatever. I, no, he's not a Democrat. He's definitely not a Democrat, but he's not a Republican. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I didn't mean anything. He's definitely not a Republican either. Let me, let me clarify that. Um, but, but here's the point is that like, it just sort of struck me that that room was probably full of people like every room is full. Like maybe this room is full of people who think that those who kind of do better things somehow are okay with God. Like, do you know that that's not the gospel? In fact, that's the antithesis of the gospel. Like, the gospel is, is that none is good. No, not one. Read Romans 3. It says that we have venom coming out of our mouth. And that we deserve to be cut off from God because of our rebellion against him. But God, in his great mercy, in the person of Jesus comes and walks among us and then lives the life that we should have lived. He did the good deeds that we should have did. He obeyed the law. He followed God perfectly. God in the flesh, but fully man. And then he took the punishment. Like this is another very unpopular theme is that our rebellion deserved wrath. 
It deserved wrath. God is angry at sin. God is angry at rebellion. And, and, and God pours out his wrath on Jesus for those and only for those that put their faith and trust in Jesus and repent of their sins. So God, God has poured out his wrath on Jesus and Jesus satisfies the wrath of God for those that have faith. And that's how they're justified. And that's the gospel. And so the question is, is like we, we can talk all day about what it is to be a better man and you know, build your wall and this is, how you, this is how you get motivated. But if you haven't done this, it means nothing. It means nothing. And how do you do this? You put your faith, you repent, you trust in Jesus and you say, Jesus, I am not a pretty good person who needs improvement. I am a lost person, a bad person who needs rescue. And everybody in this room needs to come to terms with that. And if you haven't, today's the day. And this is the verse right here that clearly says it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that even that was a gift of God, we have peace with God, not because we're good people or because we've canceled HBO or because we don't download porn anymore or because we don't cuss anymore or because we occasionally give to charity, but we have peace with God because of what Jesus did. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And that really didn't have anything to do with the point I was trying to make, but that's the gospel, so you needed to hear it. Verse 3, this is the point here about how, how pain is part of God's providence for you. Come on, let's, let's, let's not be wimpy, like wimpy, like noodle-spined Christians. Let's realize that God is providentially in control of all things, even our pain and our struggle. Verse 3, more than that, listen to this. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see the beauty of that truth? Is that God is providentially in control of even our pain and pours it into us to create in us a character more like Christ so that through even our joys and our sorrows, Christ is magnified to a world that's lost and broken that desperately needs to see that type of witness in people who aren't always happy, who don't don't always have good things happen to them, but whether it be full or empty, they are pursuing Christ in such a way that His glory rests upon them. And that becomes irresistibly attractive to a world who hungers for that type of example. And that's what Nehemiah chapter 4 is calling us to today. As the guys come back, just a couple questions for you. I know the hour's late, but I mean, where are we going? Here's the question. A couple of them for you. Are you just jumped out to me? As we were reading, Nehemiah set protections. Are you a Christian and you just know there's some weak spots in your wall? I had weak spots in my wall. I still do. I'm on guard all the time. Weak spots in my wall. I've been very public and honest about weak spots in my life. I don't need to reiterate them now. But when are you vulnerable? If we could be honest and we unpack your suitcase right now, you'd say, yeah, man, this, this thing, I am opening myself up to this thing and, and the enemy is just killing me. Well, come on. Let's go. Remember the Lord. He's awesome and he's great. Fight. Come on. Fight. You can do it. You can do this. 
And if you're not a Christian, how you do that, first of all, is you believe in Christ. And you repent and you put all your trust in him because you know that not only is the enemy there to destroy you, but God's wrath will consume you unless you are right with Jesus. So maybe the first step is for you is not just, I need, a, I need a technique on how to live a better life. No, maybe you need to surrender your heart to Jesus and place your faith in him and be justified with him today. Maybe that's you. And you, do, you don't sign a card or pray some special prayer. Here's what you do. This is what Jesus says. He says, repent and believe. Repent. In other words, turn from self-reliance. And trust in good works and believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus alone is God in the flesh, fully man, fully God, who's come to bear the wrath of God for us in our place. And then all that would believe in him would not only have their wrath borne by him on the cross, but would receive his life and his righteousness so that you can live a life of pursuit of God. You need to do that. You need to repent and believe today. Do that. You can do that in your chair when we sing a song. If you want somebody to help you kind of pray through that, come down. Look, don't be bashful. Come on, do that. Do that. If you're a Christian already and you've got some holes in your wall, come on, set the protection. Let's go. You can do this. You can do this. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans eight thirty-one. A couple verses later it says, How... He who graciously gave up his son for us, how will he not graciously give us all things? And that doesn't mean that we're just going to be yanked out of our situation and everything's going to be hunky-dory, but it means that through the difficulty of painful progress of building the wall, God will be great and awesome for us as we fight for our lives and our wives and our children and our brothers and our sisters and our city and our hearts. Lord, as we come now to respond to you, I pray a few things. Number one, that if there's somebody in this room who has not received Jesus as Lord and King and Savior and the all-consuming object of their life and worship, maybe they have thought themselves to be a Christian up to this point, but maybe by your Holy Spirit it has become clear that they are not. God, would you, would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding word of God? Would you bring that dead heart back to life? And if that's you and here today, friend, what you do is you repent, you believe. You don't have to understand. Look, I understand there's a whole lot you don't know. That's okay. Right now, what's before you is do you believe that Jesus is the only way? And are you right with him? Have you turned from self-trust and disobedience to faith in Christ alone? repent and believe and the Bible says that when you do that you are born again you are saved you are rescued you are transferred as Colossians 1 13 says from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son whom he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins look you need to do that today if that's not you and I trust that the Holy Spirit is a whole lot stronger than persuasive human words So repent and believe. If you need to talk about that with somebody, we'll be down here when the guys begin to play or after service. But look, it's not a six-step program. It's repent and believe. And I pray the Holy Spirit will come and flood your heart with saving grace and bring your dead heart back to life. The second thing I want to say is 
the people who have already done that are Christians in this room. Maybe what the Spirit of God is saying to you right now is that we need to reinterpret the pain in our life. Because so often in my life I know that pain and my own insecurity and struggle and opposition and resistance causes me to freeze and to self-protect and to get defensive. But the example of Nehemiah is to remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight and have the great privilege as a Christian to view your pain and your struggle and your opposition and your trial in a different way that it is actually part of the good and gracious hand of our providential God so that you will become more like Jesus so that he can work through you and us collectively more effectively for the glory of his name. What can be more satisfying than that? So Father, would you give us the great grace by your Holy Spirit and because of what Jesus did on the cross to reorient how we view the trials and the stresses and the difficulties and the pain in our life as part of your providential progress for us. Give us that great grace, I pray, as we worship you now and respond in Jesus' name. Amen. The guys are going to sing. Communion is open for you to receive. If you need prayer, look, don't be bashful. Come on, this is not... Look, don't be bashful. Life is too serious and it is too hard for us not to be prayed for if we need prayer. If you are sick in body, come and let's pray. We're going to anoint you in oil. We're going to believe that God will heal you. And if in his providence he doesn't, we're going to pray that God would work through you so that it would be a light of Christ. If you have any other thing, come on, let's pray. Let's get aggressive. Let's not get shifty or passive. Let's pursue and respond to God right now for the few next few minutes and I'll come back. Let's do it.